Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are looking internally, conjuring up our courage and celebrating our spunk. Because long-term vision takes guts and long-term goals take perseverance and passion. What's standing in your way? For many of us, fear and self-doubt create roadblock after roadblock, pushing our dreams further from our reach. Let's push back. Instead of changing our goals and altering our pursuit, let's remove the obstacles standing in our way. It's time to pursue guts and grit by conquering fear. What is fear anyhow? An unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. So one is perceived threat and one is actual danger. Can we make this distinction right out of the gate? Remember, we're removing obstacles from our life's journey. To do that effectively, we need to be specific. What if you were afraid of everything? Imagine how that would limit your day, petrified from fear. So let's go ahead and release unnecessary fear, perceived fear. More to come on that. I would like to think that I'm pretty fearless. Let me clarify and quantify that statement just a bit using perceived and actual. I don't like high places where I could fall to my death. Not once has bungee jumping, parachuting, or deep sea diving ever crossed my mind as an enjoyable pastime option. I'm not a fan of snakes, bull riding, or wrestling alligators, and cage or no cage, I will not be swimming with sharks. So maybe I should say I'm quite fearless when it comes to perceived danger. I actually enjoy speaking to large crowds. I'm not shy or reserved, and I believe everyone will like me. Not to sound arrogant in any way, I liken it to a chameleon changing its colors to blend in as a way of protection. You see, by believing everyone will like me, I remove any fear of not being accepted. Myself and my ideas. This gives me the confidence to approach anything, from a person to a new idea. It's easy for me to go for it because I believe in what I'm doing and I'm confident that it will be well-received. Sometimes after the fact, I chuckle to myself and think, wow, Kendall, that was gutsy. How did you do that? But I'm thankful. Being trapped by fear means you short-side yourself from reaching your true potential. Theodore Roosevelt said, it's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of a high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, 
so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory or defeat. Tim Newman gets this exploration started with dissecting terror. How does fear work? Featured at medicalnewstoday.com. Let's investigate the biology of fear, why it has evolved, what happens in our bodies when we're scared, and why it sometimes gets out of control. What happens in the brain and body when we're scared? Everyone gets scared. Fear is an unavoidable facet of human experience. People generally consider fear an unpleasant emotion, but some go out of their way to trigger it. For example, jumping out of planes or watching a scary movie. Fear is justifiable. For instance, hearing footsteps inside your house when you know that you're the only one home is a valid reason to be terrified. Fear can also be inappropriate. For example, we might experience a rush of terror while watching a slasher movie, even though we know that the monster is an actor in makeup and that the blood is not real. Many individuals consider phobias to be the most inappropriate manifestation of fear. These can attach themselves to pretty much anything, spiders, clowns, paper, or carpets, and significantly impact people's lives. So why do we get scared? As far as evolution is concerned, fear is ancient. And to a certain extent, we can thank fear for our success as a species. Any creature that doesn't run and hide from bigger animals or dangerous situations is likely to be removed from the gene pool before it gets a chance to procreate. Fear's essential role in survival helps explain why it sometimes seems a little trigger-happy. In other words, it makes sense to be a little jumpy if you're an animal in a hostile environment. It's better to run and hide when your own shadow catches you by surprise than to presume that a shadow is safe, only to be eaten by a bear five seconds later. People often refer to the physiological changes that occur when a person experiences fear as the fight-or-flight response. Overall, as the name suggests, the changes prepare the animal to either fight or run. Breathing rate increases. Heart rate follows suit. Peripheral blood vessels in the skin, for instance, constrict. Central blood vessels around vital organs dilate to flood them with oxygen and nutrients, and muscles are pumped with blood ready to react. Muscles, including those at the base of each hair, also become tighter, causing pyloerection, which is colloquially called goosebumps. When a human's hair stands on end, it makes little difference to their appearance, but for more hirsute animals, it makes them seem larger and more formidable. Metabolically, levels of glucose in the blood spike, providing a ready store of energy if the need for action arises. Similarly, levels of calcium and white blood cells in the bloodstream see an increase. The fight-or-flight response begins in the amygdala, which is the almond-shaped bundle of neurons that forms part of the limbic system. It plays an important role in processing emotions, including fear. The amygdala signals the hypothalamus, which then activates the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland is where the nervous system meets the endocrine or hormone system. 
The pituitary gland then secretes adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH, into the blood. At this time, the sympathetic nervous system, a division of the nervous system responsible for the fight-or-flight response, gives the adrenal gland a nudge, encouraging it to squirt a dose of epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, and other catecholamines into the bloodstream. The body also releases cortisol in response to the ACTH, which brings about a rise in blood pressure, blood sugar, and white blood cells. Circulating cortisol turns fatty acids into energy, ready for the muscles to use, should the need arise. Catecholamine hormones, including epinephrine and norepinephrine, prepare muscle for violent action. These hormones can also boost activity in the heart and lungs. Reduce activity in the stomach and intestines, which explains the feeling of butterflies in the stomach. Inhibit the production of tears and salivation, explaining the dry mouth that comes with fright. Dilate the pupils, produce tunnel vision, and reduce hearing. Both the hippocampus, a brain region that is heavily involved in memory, and the prefrontal cortex, which adds high-level decision-making, also help control the fear response. They help us understand whether our fear response is real and justified or whether we might be overreacting somewhat. If the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex decide that the fear response is exaggerated, they can dial it back and dampen the amygdala's activity. This partly explains why people enjoy watching scary movies. Their sensible thinking brain can overpower the primal parts of the brain's automated fear response. So we get to exercise the rush of fear before our more reasonable brain center dampens it down. But why do we freeze when we're scared? The idea of our bodies preparing to fight or fly makes good sense from a survival standpoint. But how would freezing be of any use? An animal that simply stands rooted to a spot would make an easy snack for a predator, wouldn't you think? When frightened, most animals freeze for a few moments before they decide what to do next. Sometimes staying motionless is the best plan. For instance, if you're a small mammal or if you're well camouflaged, staying still could save your life. A 2014 study identified the neurological root of the freezing response, created by crosstalk between the periacodactyl gray, or PAG, and the cerebellum. The PAG receives various types of sensory information about threats, including from pain fibers. The cerebellum is also scent sensory information, which is used to help coordinate movement. The researchers found a bundle of fibers that connects one region of the cerebellum, called the pyramus, directly to the PAG. Messages that run along these paths cause an animal to freeze with fright. The authors of the study hope that their findings might one day help design ways to treat people with anxiety disorders and phobias who can become paralyzed by fear. Medical professionals class phobias as an anxiety disorder. Phobias are often an irrational and overactive fear of something that most often cannot cause harm. They can attach to pretty much anything and significantly impact people's lives. 
There is no hard and fast reason a phobia will develop. Both genes and the environment can be involved. Sometimes the origin can be relatively easy to understand. Someone who witnesses someone falling off a bridge might later develop a phobia of bridges, for instance. In general, however, the origin of a phobia is tricky to unravel. After all, most people who witness someone falling off a bridge don't develop a phobia of bridges. So there's more to it than a simple experience. While there are still many questions left unanswered, scientists have uncovered some of the neural events that underpin phobias. Given our understanding of the amygdala's involvement in the fear response, it's unsurprising that there's a link between phobias and heightened activity in this region. One study also discovered that there was a disconnect between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, which normally helps an individual override or minimize the fear response. Aside from the fear felt when someone with a phobia meets their nemesis, these individuals are also in a heightened state of arousal. They always expect to see their trigger, even in situations where it's not particularly likely to appear. Some researchers argue that this vivid, fearful expectation plays a significant part in boosting the fear response when a person does come across their phobic objection. Another study explored this phenomenon in people with arachnophobia. It found that if scientists told these individuals that they might encounter a spider, activity in their brains differed from that in control participants without a phobia. Specifically, activity in the lateral prefrontal cortex, precunius, and visual cortex was comparatively lower. The authors say that these brain regions are key for the regulation of emotions. They help us keep level-headed. A reduction in their activity suggests a reduced ability to keep a lid on fearful emotions. Often, an individual with a phobia will be well aware that their response to the object that they fear is irrational. The weaker activity in these brain regions help explain why this might be. The parts of the brain responsible for keeping a cool head and assessing the situation are muted, thereby allowing more emotional regions to play their hand. The fear response has kept us alive. It's primal, and we should respect it. At the same time, it can be unpleasant and interfere with someone's day-to-day. However, fear is also the source of a highly enjoyable adrenaline rush. Fear inspires filmmakers, roller coaster designers, psychologists, neuroscientists, and everyone in between. It's a fascinating and multifaceted human emotion. Well, in the face of real danger, I've always been afraid that I would be paralyzed by fear. I mean, how do you really know what you would do unless you were actually in a terrifying situation? You can visualize yourself street fighting with a perpetrator, but is that really how it would go down? Instead of worrying about my reaction, creating undue anxiety, I let the feeling go. Sounds heavenly, right? No, really. I choose not to react to situations that may or may not ever happen. It's counterproductive. Does that mean my heart never races and I walk through life cool as a cucumber? No. It simply means that I am making a choice to release fear, worry, and anxiety. I will not let them take root in my mind. 
They are not welcome here. You are in charge of your brain. Say it. I am in charge of my brain. No longer will I let it play tricks on me, worry without cause, and stress without reason. I will leave it open and ready to problem solve when needed, daydream, wonder, and rest. Over at nm.org, I found five things you never knew about fear. Fear is physical. Fear is experienced in your mind, but it triggers a strong physical reaction in your body. The amygdala alerts your nervous system, which sets your body's fear response into motion. Stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline are released. Your blood pressure and your heart rate increase. You start breathing faster. Even your blood flow changes. Blood actually flows away from your heart and into your limbs, making it easier for you to start throwing punches or run for your life. Your body is preparing for fight or flight. Fear can make you foggy. As some parts of your brain are revving up, Others are shutting down. When the amygdala senses fear, the cerebral cortex, area of the brain that harnesses reason and judgment, becomes impaired. So now it's difficult to make good decisions or think clearly. As a result, you might scream and throw up your hands when approached by an actor in a haunted house, unable to rationalize that the threat is not real. Fear can become pleasure. But why do people who love roller coasters, haunted houses, and horror movies enjoy getting caught up in those fearful, stressful moments? Because the thrill doesn't necessarily end when the ride or the movie ends. Through the excitation transfer process, your body and brain remain aroused even after your scary experience is over. Dr. Sakura says, During a staged fear experience, your brain will produce more of a chemical called dopamine, which elicits pleasure. Fear is not a phobia. If you're slightly uneasy about swimming in the ocean after watching Jaws, the movie did what it was set out to do. But if you find yourself terrorized, traumatized, and unable to function at the mere thought of basking on the beach, you might be experiencing more than just fear. The difference between fear and phobia is simple. Fears are common reactions to events or objects. But a fear becomes a phobia when it interferes with your ability to function and maintain a consistent quality of life. If you start taking extreme measures to avoid water, spiders, or people, you might have a phobia. Fear keeps you safe. Fear is a natural and biological condition that we all experience. It's important that we experience fear because it keeps us safe. Fear is a complex human emotion that can be positive and healthy, but it can also have a negative consequence. If a fear or phobia affects your life in negative and inconvenient ways, speak to your primary care provider who can help you determine the kind of treatment you might need. Okay, I am sorry. Who saw the movie and had zero fears of the ocean? Unlike Friday the 13th, where I'm pretty sure Michael Myers is fictional, sharks are real. 
At any rate, some fears are not necessary to overcome. I do just as well sunning on the sand, appreciating the ocean from afar. Conquering fears that have you trapped or prevent you from moving forward and experiencing your true potential, well, that's another thing. Getting to the root of that fear, unpacking the real versus perceived, then facing what you can is important. Josh Stimmel gives us some ideas with 14 ways to conquer fear found at Forbes.com. At the beginning of each new year, many people consider making resolutions to change for the better. It's a great time to goal set. Of those who succeed in making resolutions, many fail. But many fail before they give success a chance because of fear. Some are afraid of failure. Others are afraid of success. Regardless of the source of fear, it immobilizes too many and prevents them from achieving what they desire and are capable of. There is no more sure way to fail than to never try. So here are 14 ways to overcome fear and make this year the one where nothing holds you back. Number one, understand fear and embrace it. Fear exists to keep us safe. It's not inherently bad or good, but a tool we can use to make better decisions. Fear isn't designed to keep us inactive, but to help us act in ways that generate the results we need and want. Embrace fear as instruction and let it inform your actions, but not control them. Number two, don't just do something, stand there. We tend to admire people who are quick to action, but being deliberate, creating a plan, and pacing yourself are also actions. Many a successful undertaking has been threatened or ruined by haste alone. When fear strikes, consider whether the correct action might be to analyze the options and make a wise, well-thought-out choice rather than jumping to what it might seem the heat of the moment. Number three, name the fear. Sometimes merely stating what your fear is gives you the strength to deal with it. Say your fear out loud, write it down, or focus your mind on it. When you try to ignore your fear, it grows. When you face it, it shrinks. Number four, think long-term. If you're an entrepreneur, you may be afraid you won't make the next payroll. But what's your three-month outlook or the outlook for three years from now? Thinking about the long-term won't fix your short-term problem but it can help you think about it more objectively and come up with the right solution. Number five, educate yourself. We are afraid of nothing so much as the unknown. If your fear is based on a lack of information, then get the information or knowledge you need to examine the situation based on facts rather than speculation. Number six, prepare, practice, role play. The long-standing top fear in the United States is public speaking. In many surveys, death itself ranks into second place to standing in front of a group and opening your mouth. If your fear is related to your performance in a certain activity, then prepare, practice, and role play. Carmine Gallo, the author of Talk Like Ted, talks about Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor, who practiced her popular TED Talk, who now, which now has over 18 million views and counting, 
She practiced it more than 200 times. If you don't have that much time, Gallo says, I find that practicing a presentation a minimum of 10 times is ideal. Number seven, utilize peer pressure. Have you ever done something scary like jumping off a high bridge into a river below only because your friends who were there were egging you on? Peer pressure, like fear itself, can be positive or negative depending on how it's wielded. Surround yourself with people who will push you to overcome your fears that are holding you back from what you want. Number eight, visualize success. Athletes may imagine the successful completion of a physical task thousands of times before achieving it. This mental mapping ensures that when the body moves, it's more likely to follow its preordained path. The same practice will prepare you to succeed at whatever you're trying to achieve. Number nine, gain a sense of proportion. How big of a deal really is the thing you're afraid of? We sometimes get so caught up in the success or failure of a particular quest that we lose sense of where it fits in with everything else we value. Ask yourself what's the worst that can happen. Sometimes the reality is bad, but often you might find that the fear itself is worse than whatever it is you're afraid of happening. Number 10, get help. Whatever you're afraid of, is it something that you have to do it alone? Can you find a mentor or support group to help you through it? Athletes have coaches. Students have teachers. Sometimes friends, even if they have no experience or expertise in what you're struggling with, can provide the needed support to face your fear. Number 11, follow others. Find a recipe. Are you doing something that has never been done? Or can you follow the footsteps of someone else who has accomplished it before? Is there a formula for success? Has someone written a book on the topic? Or can you tweak a formula from another field to meet your needs? Number 12, have a positive attitude. In the Brian Tracy's book, The Power of Self-Confidence, become unstoppable, irresistible, and unafraid in every area of your life. He asks, what would you do differently if you were absolutely guaranteed of success in any undertaking? Would you try more things? Would you keep working long after others had given up? People who have positive attitudes are successful because they keep trying after others give up. Number 13, be willing to pivot. As the adage goes, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But there's also the saying, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. If you're afraid to do something again because it didn't work out the last time, figure out why it didn't work and try something different before you give up altogether. Number 14, focus on others as your motivation. There are things we would never do for ourselves that we would quickly and fearlessly do for others. Hiram Smith, the co-founder of Franklin Covey, once asked a mother in his audience during a presentation if she would be willing to cross a standard metal, like an I-beam, placed on the roof of a skyscraper to another. She said no, she wouldn't. 
He asked her if she would do it for a million dollars and added that now there was a bit of wind and some raindrops falling. She still wouldn't. Then he told her to imagine he was holding her child over the edge of the opposite building. And if she wasn't there in 10 seconds, he would drop the child. What do you think her answer was under those circumstances? My motivator is winning. Not beating everyone else, but challenging myself to growth and winning. I love setting goals, visualizing what it will take to reach those goals, creating action plans, and then executing. I'm energized when I see an idea start in my mind, get transferred to paper, shared with Matt, and then start to take form. Wow, there is nothing like it. So what happens when it doesn't work out? Devastating blow? Maybe for a hot minute, then I move into problem-solving mode. My desire hasn't changed, but it's clear my approach has to if I want to see this through. When do you give in? And when do you give up? Dale Carnegie said, Inaction breeds doubt and fear. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, don't sit at home and think about it. Go out and get busy. James Clear gives us grit, a complete guide on being mentally tough found at jamesclear.com. So what is grit? Let's define it. Grit is the perseverance and passion to achieve long-term goals. Sometimes you'll hear grit referred to as mental toughness. Angela Duckworth, a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, suggests that grit is a strong predictor of success and ability to reach one's goals. Duckworth's research on grit has shown that West Point cadets who scored highest on the grit test were 60% more likely to succeed than their peers. Ivy League undergraduates who had more grit also had higher GPAs than their peers, even though they had lower SAT scores and weren't as smart. When comparing two people who are the same age but have different levels of education, grit, and not intelligence, more accurately predicts which one will be better educated. Competitors in the National Spelling Bee outperform their peers not because of IQ, but because of their grit and commitment to a more constant practice. So how can you be mentally tough? Step one, define what grit or mental toughness means for you. For you, it might be going one month without missing a workout, delivering your work ahead of schedule for two days in a row, calling one friend to catch up every Saturday this month. Whatever it is, be clear about what you're going after. Step two, build grit with some physical wins. So often we think that grit is about how we respond to extreme situations. But what about everyday circumstances? Mental toughness is like a muscle. It needs to be worked to grow and develop. Choose to do the 10th rep when it would be easier to do just nine. Choose to create when it would be easier to consume. Choose to ask the extra question when it would be easier to accept. Prove to yourself in a thousand tiny ways that you have enough guts to get in the ring and do battle with life.
Step three, build strong habits and stop depending on motivation. Grit isn't about getting an incredible dose of inspiration or courage. It's about building the daily habits that allow you to stick to a schedule and overcome challenges and distractions over and over and over again. Mentally tough people don't have to be more courageous, more talented, or more intelligent, just more consistent. Grit comes down to your habits. It's about doing the things you know you're supposed to do on a more consistent basis. It's about your dedication to daily practice and your ability to stick to a schedule. You might be grittier and gutsier than you first realized. Have these ideas brought to mind some goals you've been unwilling to let go of? Dreams that you're still working towards even though it's taken longer than expected? Ideas can be quick, but executing those ideas and seeing real success can be a lengthy endeavor. Find an accountability partner, not just to hold you accountable, but someone who can offer encouragement through the rough patches, help you get past the failures and overcome any naysayers. Someone who you trust and who you can also share with. It can be fun to help each other shape and mold your dreams. This is a short TED Talk by psychology professor Angela Duckworth. She's explaining the concept of grit and how it helps foster mental toughness in our everyday lives. When I was 27 years old, I left a very demanding job in management consulting for a job that was even more demanding, teaching. I went to teach seventh graders math in the New York City public schools. And like any teacher, I made quizzes and tests, I gave out homework assignments. When the work came back, I calculated grades. What struck me was that IQ was not the only difference between my best and my worst students. Some of my strongest performers did not have stratospheric IQ scores. Some of my smartest kids weren't doing so well. And that got me thinking. The kinds of things you need to learn in seventh grade math, sure, they're hard. Ratios, decimals, the area of a parallelogram. But these concepts are not impossible. And I was firmly convinced that every one of my students could learn the material if they worked hard and long enough. After several more years of teaching, I came to the conclusion that what we need in education is a much better understanding of students and learning from a motivational perspective, from a psychological perspective. In education, the one thing we know how to measure best is IQ. But what if doing well in school and in life depends on much more than your ability to learn quickly and easily. So I left the classroom, and I went to graduate school to become a psychologist. I started studying kids and adults in all kinds of super challenging settings. And in every study, my question was, who is successful here and why? My research team and I went to West Point Military Academy. We tried to predict which cadets would stay in military training and which would drop out. We went to the National Spelling Bee and tried to predict which children would advance farthest in competition. We studied rookie teachers working in really tough neighborhoods, asking which teachers are still going to be here in teaching by the end of the school year. 
And of those, who will be the most effective at improving learning outcomes for their students? We partnered with private companies asking, which of these salespeople is going to keep their jobs? And who's going to earn the most money? In all those very different contexts, one characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success. And it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future, day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years, and working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. A few years ago, I started studying grit in the Chicago public schools. I asked thousands of high school juniors to take grit questionnaires, and then waited around more than a year to see who would graduate. Turns out that grittier kids were significantly more likely to graduate, even when I matched them on every characteristic I could measure, things like family income, standardized achievement test scores, even how safe kids felt when they were at school. So it's not just at West Point or the National Spelling Bee that grit matters, it's also in school, especially for kids at risk for dropping out. To me, the most shocking thing about grit is how little we know, how little science knows about building it. Every day, parents and teachers ask me, how do I build grit in kids? What do I do to teach kids a solid work ethic? How do I keep them motivated for the long run? The honest answer is, I don't know. <laughs> what I do know is that talent doesn't make you gritty. Our data show very clearly that there are many talented individuals who simply do not follow through on their commitments. In fact, in our data, grit is usually unrelated or even inversely related to measures of talent. So far, the best idea I've heard about building grit in kids is something called growth mindset. This is an idea developed at Stanford University by Carol Dweck, and it is the belief that the ability to learn is not fixed, that it can change with your effort. Dr. Dweck has shown that when kids read and learn about the brain and how it changes and grows in response to challenge, they're much more likely to persevere when they fail because they don't believe that failure is a permanent condition. So growth mindset is a great idea for building grit, but we need more. And that's where I'm going to end my remarks, because that's where we are. That's the work that stands before us. We need to take our best ideas, our strongest intuitions, and we need to test them. We need to measure whether we've been successful, and we have to be willing to fail, to be wrong, to start over again with lessons learned. In other words, we need to be gritty about getting our kids grittier. Thank you. Let's learn a little bit more from Carol Dweck on what having a growth mindset actually means. This was found at Harvard Business Review. Scholars are deeply gratified when their ideas catch on, and they're even more gratified when their ideas make a difference. 
improving motivation, innovation, or productivity, for example. But popularity has a price. People sometimes distort ideas and therefore fail to reap their benefits. This has started to happen with the research on growth versus fixed mindsets among individuals and within organizations. To briefly sum up the findings, individuals who believe their talents can be developed through hard work, good strategies, and input from others have a growth mindset. They tend to achieve more than those with a more fixed mindset, those who believe their talents are an innate gift. This is because they worry less about looking smart and they put more energy into learning. When entire companies embrace a growth mindset, their employees report feeling far more empowered and committed. They also receive far greater organizational support for collaboration and innovation. In contrast, people at primarily fixed mindset companies report more of only one thing, cheating and deception among employees, presumably to gain an advantage in their talent race. In the wake of these findings, growth mindset has become a buzzword in many major companies, even working its way up into the mission statements. To remain in a growth zone, we must identify and work with these triggers. Many managers and executives have benefited from learning to recognize when their fixed mindset persona shows up and what it says to make them feel threatened or defensive. Most importantly, over time, they have learned to talk back to it, persuading it to collaborate with them as they pursue challenging goals. It's hard work, but individuals and organizations can gain a lot by deepening their understanding of growth mindset concepts and the process for putting them into practice. Judy Bloom says, each of us must confront our own fears, must come face to face with them. How we handle our fears will determine where we go with the rest of our lives, to experience adventure or to be limited by the fear of it. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, evaluate perceived from actual when exploring your fears. Choose to release irrational fear, avoiding reactions to perceived threats. Instead, explore your goals, conjuring guts and grit as you make a commitment for the long haul. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone through until the path was clear.